0: Questions. We've been doing a series called I Have a Question, and the first three weeks, we covered a few things. Um, uh, The first week, is it okay if I'm sincere? As long as I have a belief in something and I'm sincere about that belief, isn't that enough? We talked about that. We talked about the the question, very common question, Uh, but don't all religions, don't all roads lead to the same God in the end? Yes or no? We talked about that. And last week we tried to make a uh, an argument that the way that grace is presented in the Bible uh, is a very, very different thing than the religion that we see. Uh, in, in the world around us. It's a very, very unique story uh, when we really look at the, at the Bible and we look at the scripture and the way it presents to us the story of this God uh, of grace. And we did that. All those messages are online. You can listen to them again if you'd like. And today it's your show. Uh, and I had told you for three weeks that if you didn't participate, I would just go next door and be with the kids. Uh, but little did I, I didn't remember that the kids would be with us. So if I go next door to number five, I'll be all alone. So you're stuck with me. <laughs> and so, but I, I, a lot of people have, have texted me and talked to me. Uh, I even got some texts this morning and I'm going to put my phone on right now. Uh, and so here's, here's how it works. Um, some people are really, really shy and um, and they don't like you know, talking in public in front of other people, and that's quite all right. But some people are really, really bold, and they like to hear themselves talk, and they want everyone else to hear them talk, and that's okay too, okay? No problem. Uh, Some people, you know, they, they give me questions on little pieces of paper, some of them text them in, some of them talk to me. So whatever medium you're comfortable with, we've actually got a microphone set up in the side here so that you can go up to the mic and that really helps because people can hear what you say. Otherwise, I have to repeat what you say. Um, and I have a few things that came in uh, before the, uh, the message today that I worked on. And so I'll, I'll whet your appetite a little bit with that. Uh, but I really want you to participate today. Again, if we look at the Gospels, Jesus did this kind of thing all the time. He interacted with people all the time. He wasn't intimidated by them. He wasn't bothered even when they challenged him and tried to trap him. He even asked people questions uh, to try and see what they were thinking and to try to get them to think. So this is, um, this is not something that's, that's very different than what we see uh, in the way that Jesus taught. Okay, so I'm going to start uh, with a question here. It'll be on the screen uh, behind me. This came out of the message, uh, Don't All Roads Lead to the Same God. I hope we're recording this. Yeah, good. I've got my backup on just in case that one, for whatever reason, doesn't work. And so this is a, an amazing question, a very difficult question uh, that came from someone. And they said, they said look, the, the, the religions that we see are our people's points of view. Um, but, but his, his, uh, uh, query was, was more looking at the church and looking at Christianity. And he said, look, look at Christianity. Christianity is so divided against itself. There's so many churches that claim to be Christian churches and they're the only one and they're the only way and everybody else is wrong. And so, you know, it's, it's war at war against itself, isn't it? So how can you pick on other religions without even looking at, the, at Christendom around the world through the ages and look at the division that it has against itself? What do you say? What's your view on this? Okay, first of all, the, the church, which is not the place, the church is the people, the church is made up of imperfect people. Are there any perfect people in this room today? Put your hand up if you're perfect. Okay, two children are perfect. So three children are perfect nobody's so okay, so if you are perfect here's my challenge to you 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 perfect people must be quiet while everybody else is participating because you claim to be perfect. This fellow over here is he's more on the ball because nobody's perfect, and we all know that nobody's perfect, and the church is made up of a bunch of imperfect people. The image that the Bible uses is it's like pottery that God is, is forming and shaping. Um, and, and some of those pieces of pottery need, need more work than others perhaps, but we all need the master's hand to shape us. So when you have a, a faith community that is made up of imperfect people, here's, here's four things that happen. Number one, conflict happens. What's conflict? Somebody tell me. You have three brothers and you don't know what conflict is? <laughs> disagreement. Yeah. And conflict is when you have strong disagreement. You have conflict. You have, you have people who have totally opposite views on something And they can't seem to find a way to resolve it. And what you have there is conflict. And that happens, friends, even in the church. Now, the the document which we get our information from about at least the beginnings of the church, the, the New Testament, is loaded with conflict. You have conflict right from the beginning of the formation of the church, Uh, The biggest conflict that we see in the book of Acts is that the Jewish people, a large group of Jewish people, felt that the message of Jesus and salvation was only for them. And it wasn't for people who were not Hebrew and not from the Jewish background and the Jewish religion. Uh, And the word that's used is the, the Gentiles. And so what goes on in the book of Acts is that God appears to be accepting non-Jewish folk into this new community of faith, the church, as we call it today. And God is accepting people, whether they're Jewish or they're Gentile or they're whatever their background is, whatever their gender is, whatever their age is, God is accepting people. And there's a group of Jewish people folk who are very sincere and very religious and very well-meaning, and they say, no, 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 no. Th- these non-Jewish people have to go through, you know, some Jewish tradition. Uh, the men need to, be, need, to be, need to have surgery, okay, I'll, I'll leave it that far, uh, in order for them to be followers of, of this Jesus and be a part of us. And there was a big conflict because the, the apostles said, no, they don't. Uh, They need to do the same thing that anybody else does. They need to to repent and have faith, and they need to believe in Jesus as their Lord, and that's it. They don't need to do all of this other work that you claim that they need to do, and there's a huge conflict, even from the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, We see conflicts in the churches that Paul writes to uh, in the way that these people are behaving with one another. So the New Testament, the same the same New Testament that teaches us uh, uh, about Jesus is the same New Testament that shows us that there's conflict, and even in the modern world, there's plenty of conflict in the church. Uh, I have seen and swam very deep uh, in some major, major conflicts uh, in in the church. I've seen conflict in mo- many more than uh, many more churches than just one church, and. Some of it can get pretty ugly, and some of it can get pretty painful. This does not mean that Christianity is false. It just means that the church is filled with imperfect people, and sometimes that imperfection leads to conflict. Is it any wonder that the New Testament also over and over and over again tells us to, in the church, to love one another and to serve one another and to get along with one another and be united with one another over and over and over and over again. Why? Because people are people and there's going to be conflict. Number two, there can be different views on matters of theology. And this is not a bad thing. It's beeping because texts are coming in. All right? That's a good sign. Uh, There can be debates on matters of theology. And and that's not a bad thing um, because there are things within uh, what we believe that have some elbow room to them and that you can flex on a little bit. For instance, uh, we profess to be a Pentecostal assembly here, i.e., we believe in an experience called the baptism in the Holy Spirit that I've taught on once a few weeks ago in this church and the, and the initial evidence of speaking in tongues, this is a Pentecostal distinctive in theology. There are many, many Christians around the world who do not define it that way, who do not believe in it that way, and that's not a big deal. Uh, that's a different view. I personally would disagree with that view, but those people are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I have many, many things to learn from them just as they have to learn from me. It's a secondary theological issue. Uh, We still believe in, in the foundation. We believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead for our justification, that he's coming again. Those are the essentials. But there's a lot of wiggle room on the secondary points there. And you can have different denominations that are formed, different churches that are formed because of differences on these little points of theology. That's not a big problem. A God is a God of diversity. I don't have a big issue with, with multiple denominations. I don't care if a person's Presbyterian, Salvation Army, Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, Mennonite, whatever. I mean, it's what do you, what do you believe about the essentials, the things that get you saved? Um, when, you, when, you, when you die and you stand before Jesus, he's not going to say, mm, were you Pentecostal? Did you believe in the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial? Did you believe that I created the world in six literal 24-hour days? Mm -hmm. Did you believe in the working of the Holy Spirit today or were you a cessationist? This is not going to be the question when you stand before God. The the question is going to be, what did you do with my son, Jesus, who died for your sin? That's going to be the ultimate question. Um, so but these these different denominations and these different these disagreements, they can happen on matters of theology, they can happen on matters of preference. Um, I mean, there are so many different kinds of churches that are based on people's preference, they like to sing this way, they like to dress that way, they like to I mean, they like their their instrument this way. They like their food cooked that way. They like their preacher looking this way. They like their preacher's wife looking this way. They like the preacher's kids looking that way. They run on this preference, that preference. It's so many preferences. Preferences aren't a bad thing, but all they are in the end is preferences. In the end, when you look again at the New Testament, the door is wide open for people's preferences. There's no little blueprint. This is exactly how you must do church, and thou shalt never do church in a movie theater on a Saturday morning. Anyone who does that, they're going straight to the... This this doesn't say this in the Bible. So there's plenty of room for preference. This isn't a bad thing. And then there are matters of tradition. Uh, And tradition is a big thing. You know, well, you're supposed to be baptized this way. You're supposed to sprinkle the person in the water and draw a little cross on their forehead, and that's a tradition. Well, no, you're supposed to submerge the person in water. No, that's a tradition. Well, no, the person's supposed to wear this when they're baptized. That's a tradition. You know, <laughs> all these traditions, they're not bad things, but in the end, they're just tradition. The bottom line is the New Testament addresses all of these things, and it has all of these things in it. If you will look closely, you will see, ah, there's a little bit of tradition there. There's a little bit of preference here. There's a little bit of theological here, and you see this in the very same document that teaches that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So the idea is all of these things, sometimes ugly, especially when we observe the conflict that can happen, do not do not, they are are not in evidence uh, in and of themselves that Christianity is somehow false or it's failed. It's just the church is made up of imperfect uh, people. Next question that came in um, uh, again on this, uh, don't all roads lead to the same God? What's the difference between a cult and a religion? This is a very good question. Uh, because cults and religions are all over the place. Uh, Essentially, you've got a theological thing and a sociological aspect that are happening there. And I'll give you two examples. Um, Galatians uh, chapter one, verses um, uh, six to nine. And Paul is, uh, is, is his introduction to the church in Galatia. And this I would call a cult. Um, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And this is what happens with a cult. Usually, it comes out of the Bible, comes out sometimes of the church, sometimes comes out of a, of a, a basic Christian church, but there'll be an aberration to the teaching that's severe enough that the gospel is changed. There's a perversion of the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel uh, other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Wow, strong, strong words from Paul. As we have already said, I say it now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. He's talking about people who, who started from within, and they went and veered way, way, way off. And now they're trying to take the whole lot of people with them. And it's a perversion of the gospel. Cults, most cults use the Bible. Uh, they will use it as a secondary book, usually to some sort of primary book, uh, written by usually the founder of the cult. But they will use the Bible. They'll just distort the thing. They will pervert the thing. And you will have a totally different Jesus presented in the belief system of this cult. So there's a theological deviation that happens in the cult. And there's also a sociological thing that happens. Uh, it, there's a big difference between a religion and, and world religion Usually, it's teaching something completely different from the Bible. It's not using the Bible. Uh, But in in many of these religions, look, if a person decides to leave it, they can leave it. It depends sometimes on the intensity of it. But in a cult, it's a very different animal there. When you're in a cult, there's a sociological thing that takes place where you really aren't thinking with your own mind anymore. Um, You're thinking with the mind of the founder of that cult. And you're not allowed to read different books. You're not allowed to associate with different people who don't believe the same thing that you do. And if you do that, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be condemned. Uh, your friends will leave you. They'll forsake you. It's a, it's a big, big problem when you're in that type of system. World religion is a little bit different uh, than that. So if you look at a, an example of world religion, you can see um, I'd use Acts chapter 17. Um, and we've talked about this before, and this is Paul, and he's in Athens, uh, and he is addressing all the Greek philosophies and the different Greco-Roman pantheon and all this stuff, and he's addressing that, and he is dealing with that in a very different way than he's dealing with what uh, he talked about in his introduction to the Galatians. Um, So you know the story where he looks around, he sees all of the religions, he sees all of the idolatry And he's very bothered by the idolatry, but what does he do? He finds the idol that says, to an unknown God. He says, aha, I'm going to tell you about the God that you don't know. This is very different than the way that he dealt with something like the Galatian heresy, uh, where you've got a perversion of the gospel. So that's, that's, cults and religions don't they're not exactly the same. Uh, mind you, some religions can be so intense that they have cult like aspects to them, uh, but there is, there is basically a difference between a cult um, and a religion. Next question, and then I'll, when I get to the basic content I have on the screen, then I'll get to the random ones, all right? Uh, this one came from Don't All Roads Lead the Same God. Is the cross we think of today the same as the cross of Jesus? Good question. Uh, And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know the exact shape of what a cross was. You see some clues uh, to a crucifixion with, uh, you know, a person's arms stretched out. Uh, John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, Uh, this is Jesus speaking to Peter when he reinstates Peter and he says, Peter, you know, feed my sheep. Uh, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And the writer, John here, he says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. So arms stretched out. Uh, they've taken you now, Peter, where you don't want to go. This is a clue, doesn't prove it, but it's certainly a clue. Uh, John chapter 20, uh, verse 25, this is Jesus and his appearance to Thomas, uh, who we sometimes call doubting Thomas. And what does Thomas say? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands. So, you know, the idea is, well, was Jesus... Was he, was he impaled on some sort of stake, in which case there'd be one nail that would go through both hands, or was he crucified and were his hands outstretched? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will argue against a crucifixion like this. Um, but uh, why would Thomas say, uh, uh, I want to see the nails in, in his hands, the nail marks in his hands? Uh, the He's implying that this was a crucifixion in the sense that we understand it. Uh, in Matthew chapter sixteen uh, Jesus talking about the the um, uh, the commitment that we have to make to follow Christ in verses twenty four and twenty five If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Well, in the first century, they knew exactly what a cross was. Uh, this was the death penalty. Does it prove that it was, you know, like a T-shaped thing? It doesn't exactly prove it, no. Uh, but there are some interesting things that we find in the, in the rocks. Um, uh, the next image you'll see on the screen is a piece of graffiti uh, that comes from uh, Rome, uh, this is a second century date. You can't really see what's on the left side there, but on the right side, it's a negative of it, and it's written in Greek but in English. Alexamenos worships his God. Well, what you have there is a crucified donkey. And so uh, people say that th- whoever wrote this graffiti is making fun of a Christian named Alexamenos for worshiping Jesus. And they depict, you know, Jesus in the most blasphemous way, this donkey on a cross. Uh, So it's possible that this is a piece of graffiti, a very important one. Uh, It's persecuting Christians, but it's showing, uh, you know, the the, mockery of the crucified Savior. Uh, Another image that you'll see on the screen, uh, this is called the Rota Square on on the left side. There's two of these, many of them have been found, but two of them have been found in Pompeii. Uh, which is uh, near uh, uh, the city of Rome. And there's a, a volcano that erupted Mount Vesuvius in the year 79. Uh, it's a very famous thing. It's actually a movie made about the subject. And uh, rumor has it that there were Christians there in Pompeii and that some of them actually thought that the volcano was the judgment of God uh, on Rome. And uh, if you, this is a palindrome. Uh, the kids will like this. You, you can read it. It's in Latin. The, the letters, it's supposed to be in Latin anyway. Um, and from top to bottom, uh, from bottom to top, from left to right, from right to left, and you can rotate it 180 degrees, it reads the same thing. It's a palindrome. So people say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And uh, one popular interpretation of it is this on the right-hand side, uh, pater noster, which is Latin for our father. In the shape of a cross, and the the alpha and the omega. Well, these if this is if this is what was going on, then the Christians were trying to communicate with one another. They're being persecuted, and they're leaving these inscriptions around to say that they're Christians, and they know what it means. It's a secret. Inscription that's referring to uh, how Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, and the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, and you see a cross there. Does it prove it? No, but it certainly lends to the idea uh, that Jesus was crucified on a cross. Um, In particular, the graffiti is is quite interesting. Uh, Does it really matter if it was shaped like this, or it was shaped like this, or shaped like this? not really, okay? What matters is that Jesus went and that Jesus died for us, right? Okay, good. Uh, Next question, and this is the last one of the lot before I handle yours. Um, uh, Why are there missing books in the Bible? Uh, The Catholics use one with more books, and this is true. Uh, your Roman Catholic friends will have a Bible that has the same 39 books of the Old Testament 27 books in the New Testament but it will have another chunk in there Uh, and here's the basic reason why in a couple of minutes Um, when the Bible, the Old Testament was written, it was written in what language? not Greek, originally what was it written in? English, no 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 Tendaji. If you get this right, you are perfect. Yeah. It starts with an H. The Old Testament. Hebrew. Yeah, whoever said Hebrew. Knew it. You knew it. It's written in Hebrew. Okay, so, so what happened was Alexander the Great sought to, to conquer the known world and make it Greek. Make it Greek in culture. Make it Greek in philosophy. Make it Greek in art. Make it Greek in language. Make it Greek in religion. Um, and he was largely successful at doing that. And the Greek language became the mainstream language of the people. When the Romans conquered the Greeks, um, the Greek language was still everywhere. And of course, what the people did with the Hebrew Old Testament is they translated it into Greek. And this is called, in our, in our time today, we call this the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The thing about the Septuagint is that it also contains a group of literature, which we, today we call the Apocrypha, which means hidden. And this is the literature that's in the Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha, if you're with me so far. Now, the Apocrypha is a very interesting body of literature. This is written between, just to make it simple, the end of, of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So last book in the Old Testament, according to the way we order it today, is Malachi. First book of the New Testament is Matthew. So between, between Malachi and Matthew, you've got a whole, bunch of, a whole bunch of literature there called today, we call it the Apocrypha, okay? Uh, now, the, the, you can prove to yourself that uh, the Septuagint, it was being read by the Apostles, It was being quoted by the apostles because if you read the New Testament and you see a part in the New Testament where it quotes a passage from the Old Testament, then you actually go into your Old Testament and see if they quoted it correctly. In many cases, you're going to see a little bit of variance there. You say, how come the quote is different than what we see in the Old Testament? And that's because your Old Testament and your modern Bible is based on a Hebrew text. And yet the New Testament is quoting from a Greek text. And you'll see a slight shift there. So it's true the apostles were reading from the Septuagint. The Jews were reading from the Septuagint. Many of them spoke Greek. The question is, what about this Apocrypha? Is that to be recognized? Well, it isn't. And the reason is that uh, the, the Jews and Jesus himself, if you go to the next slide. Oh, you're, on, you're, you're ahead of me. Yeah, go back one. Perfect. The, the, uh, go, uh, uh I don't know where I am. Okay. Yeah, there, that's good, that's good. You're fast, you're fast. So the the Old Testament, you got 39 books by the way that we ordered it. This was always recognized as authoritative by the Jews, always uh, was recognized as authoritative by Jesus. Jesus mentions the major divisions of the Old Testament in two places. He does it in Luke chapter 11 and uh, verse 51. Uh, I'm gonna pull it up for you here. Luke 11 and 51, this is a a passage of condemnation, strong condemnation toward the Pharisees. And he says to them in verse 51, from the blood of Abel, first person uh, uh, killed in the book of Genesis, uh, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, this would be from Chronicles which would be the last book of the Old Testament according to their order back then. We've just rearranged the order today. So he's basically saying from Genesis to Malachi, uh, I tell you this generation will be responsible for it all. This, In context, Jesus is uttering a strong condemnation to the Pharisees there, but look what he does. He refers to the Bible that they knew, that they understood, that they accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament. He does it again in Luke 24 when he's appeared to the Uh, the the men on the road to Emmaus, uh, I think, and 24 and 44, uh, no, this is to the larger group of disciples. He says to them, uh, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And back in their time, those are the three major divisions of the 39 books of the Old Testament. So Jesus never recognized the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha has very interesting stuff in it. It has some good history in it, but Jesus never recognizes it. The apostles never quote from it. They never, they never call it authoritative. Uh, some of the things that happen in, in those books are, are, are uh, mentioned briefly. Like, for instance, Jesus celebrates uh, Hanukkah or the festival of lights, well, that's not in the Old Testament. Hanukkah comes out of the intertestamental period, uh, which is, uh, you go to the next slide, between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, This is a a, a story of something that happened uh, in that period, and Jesus celebrates Hanukkah in John chapter 11. But he never says that the book which, which outlines the story of Hanukkah is authoritative. Uh, so it's, it's a group of literature written between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, Jesus never recognized it. The Jews never recognized it as authoritative. With well, the Old Testament, it's a fairly easy question to answer. Uh, the question is, what about the New Testament? Well, if you look at what Jesus says, uh, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he is promising Uh, that the Holy Spirit will somehow teach the people and remind the people of the things that he has spoken. So John 14 uh, and 26, for example, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Well, how is he going to do that? John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. When the counselor comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, uh, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Well, how will he do that? John chapter 16, verse 13 Uh, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And the implication is that the Holy Spirit is somehow going to teach the people and remind the people of the words that Jesus has spoken. And this is really the foundation of the preaching that we see in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. So uh, if you go to the next slide, uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 2 and verse 19 as an example Uh, what these people thought that they were preaching uh, when they were preaching. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 13. Um, Surely you remember, brothers, this is Paul writing to the church there, our toil and hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. We were encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And watch. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, so the apostolic preaching, he's equating to the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Implication, what they're preaching, is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. It is the Word of God. Galatians chapter 1, uh, back there, we looked at it before, but uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 11 and 12. um, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached, this is Paul speaking, is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus himself. He's equating the gospel with the word of God by what he's saying there. And that's a very bold statement, but it's clear that this is what he believed. Second um, Peter chapter 3, this is Peter referring to the preaching of Paul. And he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. What's he doing? He's taking the preaching of Paul and he's equating it with the authoritative scripture of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Bible. This is is why we call the New Testament the New Testament. It is the word of God. Uh, uh, Peter believed that. Paul believed that. Jesus promised it. Um, And in the end, if we're going to read from the Apocrypha, uh, which is contained in the Catholic Bible, we have to have reason to do so. And we don't really have that reason from Jesus himself, nor do we have it from uh, the Jews. They didn't accept it as authoritative, although they may have celebrated some of the feasts in it and all of that. The question is, did they accept it as the word of God? And they didn't. Uh, in the New Testament, after the New Testament is written, you have a plethora Of material that comes out. You have things like the Gospel of Thomas. You have the Gnostic Gospels. You have tons and tons of stuff that are written after the New Testament is done. And even with those kinds of things, we say, well, should they be part of the canon of Scripture, the the standard uh, uh, authoritative Word of God, or shouldn't they? And the basic question is, well, do these letters and writings have a connection to the apostles? Jesus said that those people would do the preaching, that the Holy Spirit would use people to remind of what uh, he had said. If it has no connection to the apostles at all, and there's no link that you can form, well, you have reason to doubt it. Is the teaching in some of these books and letters, is it consistent with what we see in the New Testament that they accepted? No. Uh, The New Testament apocryphal books teach a totally different Jesus Uh, the gnostic gospels teach a totally different jesus and in the end this idea that the church somehow uh, rolled the dice and decided these books are the bible and this is the canon of scripture and we're just going to throw out the rest you know if you've read dan brown's the da vinci code or you've seen the movie this is the idea that he puts forth in the minds of people you know, that uh, that in the third or the fourth century, you had a bunch of church people and, you know, the emperor, and he said, well, this book I like, this book I like, and that's it, thus saith the church. But that's not the way that it came about. Really, what you can say is that these books that we now read as the New Testament, they really impose themselves. And people just said, everybody is accepting this as authoritative. It's got a direct link to the apostles. Jesus promised it. They're backing up their preaching with miracles. And it was basically not a question. Uh, things that happened in the third and the fourth century were to deal with various heresies in the church and all of that. But nobody sat around in a little cloistered room and decided, well, this book we'll keep and this book we won't keep. Okay? We have... Uh, A solid basis for defining what the canon of Scripture is, and that is the 66 books of the Bible that we have. Is it bad to read from the Apocrypha? No. But is it authoritative? Uh, The answer, if you ask Jesus, would be no. Okay, now it's time, finally, uh, with a few minutes left for me to answer some of the stuff uh, that has come in, uh, and I'll do so, take a little bit of time here. And if you have, uh, if you want to use the mic You can go and you can use the mic. We've got the kids here already. We don't have to tear down. The kids are being so good, aren't they? My goodness, maybe you are perfect. I don't know. We need to learn something from these kids, okay? Uh, Here's a question uh, that came in uh, via text. It's from Genesis chapter four. Um, When Cain was being driven out of of the garden, uh, not of the garden, uh, this is after the garden, you have Genesis chapter four, and you have Cain and Abel, and Cain uh, slays his brother Abel uh, out of jealousy uh, because God accepted Abel's uh, offering and didn't accept Cain's. It's a very interesting story, and Cain slays his brother, and, um, and you see in Genesis chapter 4 uh, how God deals with that whole situation. And the question is asked here from Genesis 4 and verses 12 to 15. Uh, This is what God says to Cain. When you work the ground, uh, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Uh, Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. And I'll be a restless wanderer in the earth. And whoever finds me is going to kill me. And the Lord said to him, no, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what it was. So that no one who found him would kill him. So he protects Cain in a sense, but he also punishes Cain in the other sense. And the question uh, that came from uh, this person uh, was, um, it says, whoever finds him will kill him. He's afraid, Cain. Well, who are these other people? Uh, where'd they come from? Weren't they uh, from Adam and Eve, right? Because if you look at the, at the account there, you don't have a whole lot of people mentioned in the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. And the answer is yes. They have to be from Adam and Eve somehow, some way. You have to understand that the book of Genesis in those first few chapters is dealing with a very, very small uh, sampling of the rapidly growing human race, um, so the old question, where did Cain get his wife? You ever ask that question? Where did he get his wife? Well, the answer is his wife was his sister. You say, ooh, that's really, ew, ew. yeah, it is. Ew, ew. But when you're the only people on the earth, that's the way that it works, friends. So, But you have a rapidly expanding population there, and you don't have everybody mentioned. Uh, and so presumably these people whom Cain is afraid of, uh, in, in some sense uh, of the word, are his siblings. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they're coming from, but you've got a rapidly, rapidly expanding population. The the Bible uh, in the first four or five books of Genesis is only focused on a small portion of them, okay? Uh, So I hope that's helpful uh, to the person who who asked this. Um, Another question that came in, which I thought was uh, amazing, this came in last night, and it was about prayer. And the, the, the person says that sometimes they have difficulty deciding and choosing the words and, you know, is it okay to pray without speaking? Do you have to speak when you pray? Can you think when you pray? Uh, and that's, a, that's an amazing question because the truth is that in the Bible, prayer takes place in many different ways. You have people speaking when they pray. You have people crying when they pray. You have people shouting when they pray. You've, you do have an example uh, in the book of Nehemiah when Nehemiah approached his boss King Artaxerxes, and he wanted permission to help rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. While he's talking to Artaxerxes, he prays in his mind. So it's not wrong to pray in your mind. Uh, if you're like me, you can't. I mean, my mind works so fast, and I think about 10 things at once, I cannot pray properly if I just think. You know, if I just say think and I'm praying, like my mind is often... 10,000 things right away, okay? I have to talk when I pray. Usually when I pray, I walk around. I pray with my eyes open. Rarely do I close my eyes because if I close my eyes, I start daydreaming. Okay, but that's just me, okay? Prayer takes place in many different ways. God wired you a certain way. You pray how, how, what works for you. But the point is you have to be communicating with God, um, not with yourself or to yourself, so, I'm a big fan of audible prayer where you hear yourself pray because that, that helps your memory and all that. But some people don't need to do that. Their minds are clear and they can pray with their mouth closed. That's fine with me. Uh, but as long as you understand that you're communicating with God and, and not, you know, it's not just a one way conversation uh, where you're just talking to yourself, uh, uh, spinning in circles, all right? Um, another question here no one's going to the mic. Uh, by the way, interrupt me. You see, if you have one, is, raise your hand or do something like that. Uh, so here's one. Uh, are we going to go through the tribulation? Are we going to heaven or will we be on earth for the tribulation? Good question. So it, it, uh, I my personal view on this is that the church, the community of faith, is going to be supernaturally removed from the planet at an event called the rapture, before the tribulation comes, before the period of wrath that comes upon the earth where God judges the earth for a period of seven years, the church will be removed from this world. In a supernatural event, in the twinkling of an eye, boom, uh, this, this cataclysmic thing will happen and a, and a significant population of the earth will be missing. And then you will have a seven-year period of conflict and war the likes of which no one has ever seen. A great amount of people on the planet are going to lose their lives uh, and the wrath of God will come. This is the view that I get in in the way that I see it in the scripture. However, uh, there are large groups of Christians who do not see it this way this particular timing, and this particular event called the rapture, and they're just as Christian as I am and just as saved as I am, and their arguments, while I disagree with them, uh, can be strong arguments sometimes. In the end, what we do agree on um, is that Jesus is coming back. Okay, the method and the timing and all the little pieces and parts we can we can wiggle on that. We can have a lot of elbow room on that, but we need to agree that Jesus is coming back. That's the central issue uh, that we need to worry about. Okay, um, let me see what else here. Another question came in. This is a common one. What about aliens? What about UFOs and aliens and life on other planets? Does it exist? Does it not exist? How many of you think that there's aliens out there? How many of you don't think there's aliens out there? Okay, here's here's the thing with the aliens. Here's what I've observed with aliens and alien stories. They're always smarter than we are. Have you ever seen a dumb alien? You ever seen a UFO that didn't start? The engine didn't start, you know? How come these aliens always have better technology? They're always smarter. They're always faster. Uh, the, the, how come? Like, they're pretty smart. I mean, every alien story that I've ever heard has got, I mean, they're, they're, they're in a completely different level than we are, right? You've never seen like a, like a dumb alien, okay, if I can put it that way. Well, here's the thing. The scripture really doesn't address this idea. So when you see creation, the pinnacle of the creation of God is humanity on planet earth. Um, And the idea of Jesus dying, Jesus died once, the scripture says, once and for all. And where did he die? He died on planet earth to redeem humanity. Well, what about all these aliens then who are smarter than us, faster than us? One would presume then they would have a soul that needs saving. Well, what, did Jesus become an alien on some other planet and die on another planet too? I mean, we just, it's, it's, a, it's conjecture. Um, and, the, and the proof and the evidence for these things, in many cases, it's highly circumstantial. It's, it's lacking some depth. So in the end, we have to wrestle with the question, Look, uh, we, have an, we have an account of creation where none of this is mentioned. Does it mean that it's not there? Well, you could say no, but where did Jesus come to die? He came to this world, and he became one of us. So we have to wrestle with that, uh, with the question of, um, of aliens. My personal view is no, uh, and until, uh, until one of them lands in my backyard and steps out and says, hi, I'm smarter than you, uh, you know as you already know I, you know I'm going to be a hard one to um, to convince uh, in that that whole area okay another one that's come in, uh, this came in by text, um, Yeah, when Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it and not a single letter will pass from the law until everything is fulfilled, how does this statement relate to the laws of the Old Testament, laws of Moses? Woo, good question. God says in the Old Testament to keep the feast uh, forever, but then some Christians will say that Christ did away with all those laws. Please clarify, thanks. Oh man, I wish I could clarify in 30 seconds or less. So look, basically what you have in the law I mean, you have civil law, you have ceremonial law, you have moral law. So the the idea of Jesus and the the new covenant that he has made does away with with the, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which is all a type and a shadow. Of the Jesus, the perfect sacrifice to come, the ceremonial law is gone, the, the civil law that we see in the Old Testament, you, you're dealing with a time and a culture that's very, very different than ours. And so you're going to see things in the, you know, the books of Leviticus and the first five books of the Old Testament that are dealing with that culture, that time, that people, and you have to have civil law in that context. Uh, But now we have civil law. Some of it looks, you know, suspiciously like the Ten Commandments and all of that. But civil law varies from context to context. What doesn't change is the ethical law of God and the moral law of God. It's expressed with a different wrapping paper from culture to culture, but that law stays the same. So, you know, you look at something like the Ten Commandments. I mean, the Ten Commandments is upheld in the New Testament. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish all of these things. I've come to fulfill it. The civil, the ceremonial law, this is all fulfilled in Jesus and his death on the cross. We don't need to be fulfilling all of these feasts and following all these feasts. We can if we want, but they're a type and a shadow of the Jesus to come. The perfect sacrifice has come. There's no more temple for the Jews to sacrifice in. Uh, All of those laws are meant to point us to Christ. What counts is the moral and the ethical stuff. And that has an expression um, in, in our world today, and that we can't say, well, God has thrown all of that out. He still has the same moral and ethical law. I hope that's. I mean, that's a surface answer. Another one that came in: uh, Can we lose our salvation? How many of you say yes? How many of you say no? Split. And this is a hot debate. This is one of those theological elbow room questions. Um, I'm of the personal view um, uh, that once you're saved. Uh, um, you're saved, but you need to remain in the vine. You need to you need to keep expressing that relationship with God. Uh, you know the the Armenian school of theology comes from this theologian who said you could you could lose it. And then you have your Calvin, your Calvinistic school of theology from a theologian who said you can never lose it. In the end, when you look at those people and what they wrote, they wrote very similar things in many respects. Uh, So we can't can't criticize the people who say, you know, you can never lose it. And they shouldn't criticize us either. Uh, Typically, Pentecostals are more on the Armenian side of things, i.e. you can lose it. But here's the deal. You shouldn't be walking around terrified that every mistake you make, you've lost your salvation. Oh, no, I've lost my salvation again. I need to say some prayer to to restore my salvation. My goodness, I would be doing that every 30 seconds, okay? Like, I sin a lot, okay? I sin sometimes I don't even know that I sin, all right? So, so you got to be careful. There's got to be a balance, r- r- whatever view you hold there. The Calvinists are not saying that you can just do whatever you want. They're not saying that. They're not saying, oh, yeah, now I'm saved so I can live a sinful life all my life, and I'll just go to heaven when I die. The Calvinists aren't saying that. And the Armenians shouldn't be saying, well, you know, you you, you lost your salvation every 30 seconds. You need to go run to a church somewhere and renew your salvation. Balance, balance in these matters of theology, okay? Um, Other stuff that's come in today, uh, this one... um, where do you draw the line? Some churches accept a lot of things. Uh-huh. you know. And now you have churches that accept the big hot button issue is, of course, the, the, the same-sex marriage stuff. Say, well, where do you draw the line? We'll, we'll do just a couple more minutes. Where do we draw the line on these things? Um, and, and there you have an example of the moral and ethical law of God, which is being transgressed. Where church is saying, "Oh, well, that's okay. we can we can perform a marriage this way when it's crystal clear um, in, in the in the scripture that this is still sin. It's always been sin. It always will be sin. Uh, what God declares there is is black and white. Uh, so where do you draw the line? Ultimately, you have to look at the essentials. Yes. Yeah, it is true. Well, the arguments the arguments are a bit different, though. So the arguments for something like same sex marriage, um, and there's a there's a school of theology that will use the scripture uh, to say that this is okay today. Um, and but when you look at the argument, that's a very different argument than, for example. Um, whether women should be accepted as preachers in the church or something the two arguments are very very different um but one is dealing with something that is a clear we have a clear statement in the scripture a moral and ethical statement as to how god feels about it so whether or not a whether or not a woman should be a minister is not that's a separate issue the two are different and the arguments are different um Ultimately, if a church is a church and it's Jesus' church, the essentials have to be there. And the essentials are what gets you saved. So, you know, you've got to have an understanding of the basic nature of God. Uh, You know, God became flesh. Uh, Jesus was born. He he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead for our salvation. Uh, You know, you have to have a, a... an understanding of the afterlife, it's pretty basic. There is an afterlife. Um, uh, the essentials, what gets you into heaven? The secondary stuff, well, there's some elbow room there. My personal view is on something like a moral and ethical view, like a same-sex marriage thing, me, I would draw the line there. And I would say, you know, if our, if our denomination, the PAOC, said, okay, now we're going to endorse this, and now we want you performing these weddings, I'd say no. I'd say I can't. I can't because the the Scripture is very clear on the subject, and you've deviated to a point now where, you know, there's a danger. How far are you going to go with this? Are you going to start going after the essentials of the Christian faith now? So are you going to start to say that Jesus isn't God now? Are you going to start to say that people don't really need to be saved anymore, that everybody just goes to heaven in the end anyway. I was reading an article about a famous, famous pastor, an American pastor, who wrote a book called Love Wins. And Love Wins is a basic universalist uh, theology. And this is the idea that everybody eventually goes to heaven. Um, And the individual who wrote the book was severely uh, criticized uh, by a number of scholars and a number of teachers, and perhaps rightly so. Um, and you know he was taken out of his church and all this stuff, and now he's back on the scene and he's filling theaters with people uh, with that particular doctrine. Okay, that that there he's he's touching on an essential there. As soon as you remove something like the necessity of people to be saved, you've you've removed an essential. Um, so we have to we have to separate the essential from the non-essential, and then even in the non-essential, you have to say okay like. On this particular argument, how far are we going to go here? You know, and it's, not, it's not an easy answer. It's a complex issue and a complex question there. But to be sure, we have denominations and churches that are now saying, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay. And every, all the rest of us are sort of saying, well, when's it going to stop? Where's the line going to be drawn, right? So there isn't, there isn't many easy answers in all of these things. Is that clear as mud? clear as mud. Okay, anybody else? Man, you have been amazing. I can't believe how quiet the kids have been. And we're running like the 11.30 hour. I can't believe this is like miraculous or borderline miraculous how these kids have been. Can we give the kids a hand? <laughs> My goodness. Maybe they are perfect. Are, are there any more? I think I've missed one or two. Uh, and I'm running out of a bit of gas here. Um, somebody's breathing. Yes, yes, Paul. I do believe in the age of accountability. Um, so, this would be the question of uh, what happens to a child um, if a tragedy happens in the life of a child or an infant. And the, the argument is used that, well, God, there's, a, there's an age where, uh, where a person becomes accountable for the things that God has shown them. Uh, and we see little bits and pieces of this uh, in the Bible. Um, and I think that that age is different for every, every child. You know, some people, uh, some people are born with, with things that make it, you know, they're, they're going to understand some of these things later on in life, some of them a little earlier. But I think ultimately the question is deeper than that is, is what happens to a person uh, who hasn't heard or doesn't know the full story, or a child, or an infant, um, and I think, I think ultimately we have to balance the, the, the justice of God um, with the responsibility of the church, uh, so uh, Romans 1, um, God, God holds everyone accountable because He's revealed Himself through creation, so people are without excuse. Romans 9, well, how can they call on one whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless they've been told? And how can they be told unless someone sends them to tell them? So there's a balance there. But I think with children, we have, for example, uh, uh, David. Uh, and when David, David's first child with the Bathsheba affair was taken uh, because of the, the, the wrath of God, essentially, um, David says, I can go to him. Well, go where? So he cannot come to me, but I can go to him. David had a positive outlook as to where that child was. Well, why? They never heard the message. So do you see what I'm saying? Somewhere between the justice of God and the responsibility of church is a balance. um, But ultimately, nobody gets into heaven except for the blood of Jesus and what he did on the cross. And some of the mysteries there, we have to leave with God. Uh, I've done a number of funerals for infants. They're never easy, Um, but I rest in the fact that God is a just God, Um, and He's he's fair, and He holds people accountable for what they know and how He's revealed Himself to them. Yeah, it's a great question.